This is Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. I'm Dr. Celine Galgich, and I'm a clinical psychologist who works extensively with OCD. And I'm Dr. Victoria Miller, but you can call me Tori. And I'm a clinical psychologist who works with young people, including those with OCD. Through our shared professional experience, we've found that effective treatment of OCD requires commitment, creativity, and the recognition that things can sometimes get a little messy. They sure can. We want to empower clinicians to be able to work with their patients in new ways to treat OCD with confidence. Today is the second part of our two-part episode with Dr. Johanna Lynch. In case you missed the first episode, Johanna is a senior lecturer at the University of Queensland and presents to audiences both internationally and across Australia. She conducts professional case consultation and coaching for GPs and multidisciplinary clinicians. She trains GPs, GP trainees and medical students in whole person care and mental health skills. Johanna is passionate about communicating with credibility and sharing practical, thoughtful insights for clinicians across the disciplines. In this episode, we continue our conversation with Johanna. You'll hear Johanna share her insights into what it looks like when you're working with patients holistically. And we get her to plug in your book, A Whole Person Approach to Wellbeing, Building Sense of Safety. Let's get started. In some ways, it's a new space, but it's also not a new space. I mean, these aren't new ideas either, are they? No. And look, that's where I was really very keen to make sure that there was Indigenous voice in my research. And so there's two key Indigenous academic stakeholders who spoke into this idea of sense of safety. And one of them very kindly wrote the foreword to my book around this. For me, it's about honouring that before Greek dualism and Cartesian dualism that divided the body into mind and body, but divided the person, people knew about whole people. And I call them the wisdom cultures. So the Hebrew way of saying the seeing the whole person, indigenous Australian ways of seeing the whole person. And I don't know enough about other indigenous ways of seeing the person, but my understanding from a distance is the same that connectedness to environment, to other people, and to the whole of your body is not seen as a disconnected disciplinary way of seeing. So they have something to teach us and remind us, almost like they haven't been colonized by empiric medicine or empiric science. And if we could ask them to teach us again, and if their way of seeing well-being could become part of how we see well-being, I think that could transform health. So fascinating. Johanna, how can GPs across Australia not only incorporate some of these things, but more specifically incorporate thinking about the whole person when it comes to working with someone with OCD, for example? My thinking about that is to have a way of thinking about the person that inherently doesn't divide off the mind from the body. And even when somebody has come in with a diagnostic label like OCD or their experiences of this kind of intense obsessions or compulsions, that you're very intentionally staying wide in how you see. And for me, it's like a little metacognition. It's the thing in the back of your mind. It's actually a practical tool on my writing about a case as well. It's a set of circles that help me remember. And then I can map what the person says as they're speaking 
and realize, oh, I haven't found out anything about their relationships or I haven't found anything out about how they're sleeping or I haven't even discovered how they're going at work. At the same time that I'm doing the other key pieces that I would do to do an assessment of mental well-being and their sense of self. So my layers in thinking about that, their environment and a very wide view of environment. So including housing and connection to country and how much nature they get to see. And then the next layer in is social climate. So the ideas of what's going on in their world that's not their personal relationships, but is the place they have to live or work or learn. What's it like at work? What's it like at school? What are the pressures and the threats that are going on for them in that space? All the joys and safety. And then the next layer in is their personal relationships. Who is there? What's going on in those relationships? Is there anybody missing, anybody really significant missing? like a parent who's just not mentioned or who's passed away or disconnected from them and how they experience those relationships. Do they perceive them to be supportive? And is there enough of them? Do they have enough of a network in that space? And then go to their body and have a very wide view of the body as well. So it includes diagnosis of physical illness, but it also includes experiences of pain and aches Joy of movement. Are they enjoying moving their bodies? What's it like to eat and sleep? And how much do they have their own normal sense of libido or interest in connecting with others? And then also have emotion in there. So I think about emotion as an embodied experience, like it's a physiological message. It's telling us the story. It's not necessarily a thought. We can interpret it later as a feeling, maybe, but. It's that embodied experience. And so to think about how do they experience their emotions and what main kinds of emotion are they having in their body? What does that mean for them? And then the next layer is inner experiences. And inner experiences include thoughts, but they also include memories and flashbacks and nightmares and dreams. And so they're these complex kind of amazing experiences. And then the sense of self. And how unified is that sense of self? How coherent does it feel? What's the attitude they have towards themselves? What words do they say to themselves? What do they hear when they listen to parts of themselves? Is there disconnection or aggression internally? And then their sense of spirit or meaning and how they make sense of how safe it feels to be on the planet, really, for them. So that's the framework I try to keep in my mind and find out little fragments. You know, again, as an external observer, you can't know the depths, especially not in one meeting. I would see sometimes my patients don't tell me for years. They wait until they can trust me about what's going on in one of those layers. But my task is to continually be open to knowing something new in each of those layers of the person when I'm caring for them. Constantly having almost like what we often refer to as a bit of a working formulation. You're always learning about the person that's sitting in front of you, but to not shut yourself off. Like there might be one phrase that your client will say in a meeting that you might have with them that will light up and give you insight into any one of those areas that you might not have known purely because they've been testing the waters and building that trust and wanting to know that they're going to be okay and they're going to be held and they're going to feel safe. They're not going to be judged. And I think that there are also things that our clients don't know because it's sitting in the back of their mind, their subconscious, and we can't know until they know, until it moves from their subconscious to their conscious. 
and they bring it to the space with us. So it, it is a journey. There are multiple discoveries along the way for us to be open to and to receive and to think through. And I'd say like it's not just negative things they cannot know as well. It can be strengths that we can see that they can't see. So again, across those areas, trying to watch for places that already they feel safe in, that they already feel competent to do or be solutions like things where people might pathologize their solution to actually think that's really a clever way of solving this problem. So I would now see a lot of addictive behaviors in that way, that addiction is much less of a problem than if they left it un- without that solution. And one of my wise mentors says, whenever you've got a problem inside, it is a solution to something else. So that kind of watching for that across the person it requires a different kind of vigilance when you're not just looking for the pathology. That's right. That's what that person needs to do in order to keep things stable. And it might not be what the rest of us perceive to be adaptive or helpful in the long run. And it's the same with obsessions and compulsions. It becomes this unhelpful way of this learned unhelpful way of staying safe. But goodness knows when that starts, people don't know that that's where it might end up or how it might grow or how it might become impactful. And avoidance is one of those things as well. So to see avoidance as a solution to the problem of not feeling okay in that moment. Brene Brown talks about shame resilience as well. So the idea of tolerating uncomfortable feelings in order to know you're okay in that space, even though it doesn't feel right in the first instance. I guess there's a lot that's in common with what you might probably do when you're doing kind of exposure therapies and things like that, where it's trying to help the body feel okay in that thought or place. I can hear that through your work is layers of compassion. So it's not just curiosity, it's not just listening, but it's taking that non-judgmental stance and huge amounts of compassion. Yeah, when I think back as to why I do this, I just keep on coming back to one or two key patients who taught me these things. Amazingly, one of the things as a GP, you get to stay in touch long term. So I've seen them raise their children and take on new types of work and those kinds of things. But when I think back to how they were when I first met them and how their stories have been ignored and how they've been cycling in and out of hospitals in suicidal situations, that's what energizes me to keep on wanting us to look wide. I had one lady who, my most favorite feedback ever, I think, was from her to say, thank you for giving my children back their mother. She came to me on multiple layers of high dose antidepressants and mood stabilizers and really overweight. And we identified that she'd always wanted to learn how to kayak. She saved up and got a kayak made that she could fit into. And then she lost so much weight by going deep sea kayaking. And she said to me, you were looking for things that nobody else was looking for. I was in a hole for so long and nobody was looking for what you looked for. And so this kind of sense of realizing that when you're in a hole, you can't see yourself as whole with a WH and you need somebody else to keep on making sure they see the whole, the WH kind of hole to get you out of there. That gave me goosebumps. That was beautiful. Yeah, so those ones that keep me going. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) I'll have to tell them to listen to this when it's done. Yeah, (laughs) please do. We have a couple of questions that we ask all of our guests, which we want to ask you. But before we do, 
plug your book so that people yes, can read more. <laughs> so it is an academic book because it's trying to make a case for a new way of thinking and it had to sort of defend that way of thinking, even though, as we talked about, it's an old way of thinking. And as my mum said, this is just common sense. <laughs> <laughs> when I showed her my PhD for the first time. <laughs> But it has got kind of my reflections on my own story because I was a migrant to Australia, came here when I was seven as a refugee from Idi Amin's Uganda, so dictatorship there, and travelled a lot as a child and had a lot of not belonging in my childhood. And so this place of sitting where you're trying to continually understand patterns and work out what's going on here and stay open to new information you didn't understand before is kind of my training for where I've ended up. And it starts off trying to explain that I think medicine has divided us up. And I use the metaphor of Humpty Dumpty, saying that Humpty Dumpty got divided up and we've divided him into silos. We put him into different faculties of the uni. We use different jargon to describe him. And then when the king's horses all come to try and put him back together, they're all speaking a different language. And the good news is Humpty never fell off the wall. He's always been whole. It's just we thought he was when we studied him. And so perhaps the idea of sense of safety is an inherent, like a home language inside all human beings, as Maslow said, that if we as healthcare providers came alongside the person and worked with their own desire to get safe, we might do better work than if we're trying to help them get better from whatever diagnostic framework we've used. And it has two key thoughts in it. One is that what we call whole person domains. And that comes from asking people what causes threat and naming them. So those are the domains I talked to you earlier about, the kind of thinking through the metacognition of caring for the whole. And the other is five dynamics that help people to feel safe in the world. And one is broad awareness. So when we're freaked out, we lose awareness of other things in the room and other people's needs and even our own self to get focused on the thing that's threatening us. And in psychiatric terms, we might say people dissociate or they repress or they suppress different parts of them. But if we just said well-being is built on broad awareness then that taps into all the resources around mindfulness and meditation and being in nature and getting to know yourself and tuning into your body as well as other people's experience. So it has mentalization in there as well. So that's one of the dynamics. The second is called calm sense-making. And all of these are across the domains. So calm sense-making and understanding my place in the world, in understanding our relationship through story and dialogue in connecting to my own body and reflecting on what something means to me, on who I am in the world. And we do it in big groups. We do it, do it in rituals where we make sense of our death through funerals or there are other ways we calm sense make, but it's a very physical thing as well as a bigger picture thing. And then the third dynamic is our sense of being in respectful connection with ourselves, with other people in our world and vice versa. And being able to sense a sense of capable engagement that I can engage with my world and my world tells me I am, encourages me to do that and gives me opportunity and access to do that. And then the fifth one is owning myself because one of our patient uh, stakeholders in the research, sense of safety is owning myself and my experiences 
And we thought in healthcare, we often forget how people own their own stories. And so just making sure that that's part of feeling safe. So those are the key kind of ideas that are going to be in that book if you have a look at it. Wonderful. I love it. We definitely need to get ourselves stuck into that, I think. (laughs) One of the questions we ask all of our guests is, what's something that you know now that you wish you'd known earlier in your career? The one that comes first to my mind is that tone of voice is more important than what you said. Oof, so good. And I wish I knew it in my mothering. I wish I knew it in my relationships with other adults. I wish I knew it in my clinical work and that it's an embodied thing. And how amazing is tone of voice? How much we're missing when we text or we use other electronic things. And it's so subtle. Yes. And I've just been reading Stephen Porges' work about how mammals have ossicles in their ears that are loose, that are attached by muscles, so that we can speak softly enough for a predator not to hear us. <laughs> 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 yeah? So that it can go tight when we need to be aware that danger's nearby, and so we can hear deeper noises. So that kind of amazing way the tone of voice connects us to other people through our bodies is amazing. I think it was me looking at Instagram reels or something where there was this man who was demonstrating just how important tone of voice is. So he was talking to his dog and in a very angry tone, but he was saying the most loving things, but his tone was really aggressive and really angry. And so he was like, I love you so much. And like, I mean, I'm not going to scream into the microphone, but you can kind of get the picture. And this poor little pup was just cowering and looked really sad and looked really like, oh my God, what have I done wrong? And just didn't know what to do with itself. And then he started saying really nasty things, but in the sweetest tone possible, calling it an effing idiot. And like, it was just being aggressive towards it, but his tone of voice was really sweet. And the dog just got so excited, its tail started wagging and all the rest of it. And it just goes to show that when you come down to a real primal kind of experience, which is what our pets do really, like they don't really think about things as deeply as we do because they can't, but (laughs) just how important that tone of voice is. It doesn't really matter what you're saying and it really is all about how you're conveying that message not just to our pets, but to each other as well. Yeah, I think that kind of embodied piece of it. And the nature of genuineness. Mm, That's true. And, you know, you can't really fake it. The other thing I've been thinking about it is as a migrant where my accent was always wrong, that it's a kind of intimate not belonging as well if your voice doesn't quite fit into those people around you. So that kind of awareness that there's this sensitivity to not belonging that can happen in such a small thing. Most definitely. I love the way that you described it. It is very intimate. It really is. Another thing we ask of our guests is we know that when we're working with people with OCD, they experience intrusive thoughts and we often normalize this with our clients. Would you be willing to share an intrusive thought that you've experienced at some point in your life? Oh, there's so many. Yeah. (laughs) Right? (laughs) That's often the first answer we get. (laughs) I'll tell you one that I had just the other day when I was having a meeting with Stephen Porges, actually. I had a research meeting with him and I had this feeling like, you're an upstart. 
We can so relate to that. I can so relate. I don't know. I'm pretty sure Tori can too, but I can so relate to that one. Yep. <laughs> yes. Like, how dare you be here? Yeah. <laughs> I say now, like, I teach my patients about not belonging. And I said, I started a futsal club with some other mums because we watched so much football of our sons. We thought, well, of course, we know how to play. So we started playing. And we had a Christmas party and at the end I arrived a bit late and you know how you arrive at a table and there's no seat opposite you. Everyone else is talking. I got one of my flashback I don't belong things from my childhood and I took myself off to the loo and said, it's okay, you just arrived late, you set this club up, of course you belong and just go back out there and ask questions. So I had all these logical things to tell myself. Since then I've learnt to also say, it's okay. You experienced a lot of not belonging. It's okay. You belong to me. And let's us go back out and sit there and do this conversation we have to do. A little bit of self-compassion goes a long way. So internal tone of voice matters too. Oh, it sure does. Oh my God. If every one of us in this entire world spoke to another person the exact same way we speak to our own selves, it would not be pretty. We forget that and we're listening. We're the ones listening to our own self. Years ago, I found some research, which I wish I could find again, which talked about how tiny the millisecond difference is between where you speak to yourself and when you hear it and how it's this intense feedback loop of our internal conversations. They are much more influential than some things that come from outside because of how often we're listening to ourselves. Well, there's so much to talk about. I know. <laughs> This has just been like absolutely (laughs) amazing. (laughs) I know. (laughs) It's been an absolute joy for me to meet you both. And I can see in you the lovely care you give to hundreds of people around you. So that's a joy for me too. Likewise. Feeling is mutual. Absolutely. Everyone's going to be like, can Johanna be my GP? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute joy chatting with you today. It really has. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to meeting you again. We would love that. Thank you so much. Let's stay in touch. Look after yourself. Thanks. Yeah, you too. See you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. This podcast is brought to you by Melbourne Wellbeing Group, a psychology practice based in Melbourne with a special focus on treating OCD. To find out more, head to our website, melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. All one word, that's melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. This podcast was made with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Breaking the Rules, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Celine Galgetch. And I'm Tori Miller. And we'll be back next episode with more reasons to convince you to get messy. Have fun and break the rules. rules.